Today's reading is from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 21. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the fertile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He has foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through time are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks to be God. Thank you, Polly. Well, we continue in our 1 Peter exposition as we look at this book. And I was thinking about it, uh, and what is the best way to sort of get us into this, this passage, into this place? And I was reminded of a movie that I liked when I was a kid growing up. And I, I don't know, I'm just going to, I'm going to kind of give you, um, well, da 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 yeah, Chariots of Fire. Some of you probably have seen it, sadly looking out over here, some of you have maybe not seen it. I will say this, none of you were near, no, no, none of you were around when it really took place, so that's good, that was, that was before our time, but it was the story of two runners in England, and one of them was Eric Little, and he, um, in this, was so different than every other runner, because one of the things that he would not do was train or race on the Sabbath, on Sunday. He, he was opposed to it. He, wasn't, he was, he was uh, the son of Scottish missionaries. He was himself going to go on to become a missionary later, but he loved to run. He said, as a matter of fact, I feel God's pleasure, at least he did in the movie, when I run. I feel God's pleasure when I run. But he was different than everybody else. He was put aside. And they would always say to him, look, you've got to run. It's, it's when the race is or we're training on this day and preparing for the Olympics, you have to run. And he would stand firm and say, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do it. That's not something that I will break down. And what's happening here as we transition out of what we talked about last week is Peter is guiding us into how the gospel life is actually lived out. So last week we were reminded that we are both exiles and we are heirs, that there is a both and of the gospel life, that we are those who live in temporary circumstances, but that we have an eternal focus, that there is something that is coming that is beyond us, 
that we are children of God while we are still exiles here in this world so we don't feel comfortable. But that doesn't mean that we separate ourselves out, right? It means that we engage and we move in. And as we look at this passage in 1 Peter chapter 1, starting with verse 13, what we're going to see is that the Christian life, the gospel life, is one that is hope-filled, based on Jesus, that moves us from our former lives into holiness, and that holiness is shown to us by God our Father. And so it's interesting, the way that Peter kind of wrote this little section in this letter to all these churches that are spread out all over is he reminds them of, first of all, hope. And then he steps in and says, I want you to remember who you formerly were. And I want you then to remember who Jesus is and understand that he's leading you to holiness. By the way, I want to remind you who Jesus is and remind you of where you've come from and give you hope. So you'll notice that in this passage, he says, therefore, prepare your minds for action and be sober minded. Set your hope fully on grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. As obedient children, don't conform to the passions of your old life, your former ignorance, but be holy as God is holy. Remember Jesus who did this and called you to this through his blood. And then he goes on and says, I don't want you to get caught up in what you inherited from the past. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the word hope, which is actually very important for us this week. Given these high profile taking of lives that have taken place, hope seems diminished in many people's lives. We can think to ourselves, Why would people go on? Some have even said that if if Kate Spade, who was famous and well-known, and and Tony Bourdain, who was famous and well-known, don't have reasons to hope. I mean, he has a 10-year-old daughter. He has a brand-new girlfriend. He's worth $100 million. We know that things externally don't bring us hope. We intrinsically know that. Because we ourselves have experienced it along with these other high-profile people. And let me just say, for every high-profile person who committed suicide this week, there are many other unknown names. Some would even say that in Australia itself that suicide is an epidemic, especially in rural areas. It continues to increase every year. Almost 65 people a day attempt Suicide in Australia. Because we look around us and we feel much like the rain splashing down that the troubles and and our worries and those things are just going to wash us away. And part of that is because we set our hope on things that are temporary. We set our hope on things that we might be able to control. Even say, understand. And what Peter reminds us here twice is that our hope comes from something else. Our hope is bigger than what we can actually see or comprehend. Moltmann puts it this way. Hope is more than a feeling. Hope is more than an experience. Hope is more than 
foresight. Hope is, in fact, a command. And obeying it means life and survival, endurance, standing up to life until death is swallowed up in victory. He goes on to say this, what anxiety and hope actually have in common is the sense of the possible. In anxiety, we anticipate possible danger. But in hope, we anticipate possible deliverance. And what Peter reminds us here is that hope is not based on anything that we tangibly can experience or build within ourselves. It has to be something that comes from beyond us. It has to be something that actually invades us and and comes in and transforms our heart. If you look, he says this, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 21, he says this, 22 and 21, he was foreknown, speaking of Jesus, before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last last times for your sake, who through him you are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. You see, Christian hope, Hope of a gospel life is a resurrection hope. And it proves to us the truth in the contradictions that are our future prospect. They offer us and guarantee us righteousness as opposed to sin. Because of the resurrection. We don't walk in sin anymore. We don't walk in that place where we sit on the throne of our own lives thinking we've got it all together. Because how desperate that is. Because we know we don't. We actually walk in righteousness because of Christ and what He's done. In life opposed to death. In glory as opposed to suffering. We saw that last week. And peace as opposed to dissension. Look, the ultimate reason for our hope cannot be found in any of the the things that we want or any of the things that we wish for or any of the things that we wait for. Our hope is ultimately found. The reason for our hope is that you are wanted, that you are wished for, and that you are waited for by a loving Father. So even when I look at myself and I say, I'm not worth it, know and hear this as Peter says, that through Jesus Christ, God says, you are worthy. I have made it so. As a matter of fact, it says Christ has revealed this, and it's more than He just revealed it. He's also accomplished it for us. We can stand in hope because of what Christ has already done. So on the cross, when he says it's finished, it's just not about him passing away. It is finished means that he's accomplished all of God's plans, that everything that he wanted to have done, the bringing back humanity to himself, to restoring true relationship with him, with yourself, with all others and with place are found completely in that moment. And that's the reason why he begins this section by saying, prep your minds for action and be sober-minded. He says, if we're going to be hope-filled people, we have to be ready for the race. Now, that 
prepare your minds for action is actually gird up your loins, which means to take your robe that you're wearing, pick it up, put it around your legs, tie it around your waist. That way you can do manual labor or you can run. See, hope is not something that just washes over us, although it's a beautiful thing when we recognize what God has done and it just overcomes us like the rain. But it is also something we have to be prepared for. We have to step into It takes our work. It takes our engagement with it. It takes us being with one another, reminding one another that there is a reason for us to look to God. That he's prepared and accomplished all that we need to live in resurrection hope. And so we prepare our minds and we walk with one another. It's interesting in this passage, he says this, He says, if you call on him, the father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout this time as an exile, knowing that you were ransomed from your futile ways inherited from your forefathers. You see, this hope springs from this fact, that word ransom. It means redeemed. Now, where we're at, in our place, we kind of think of redeemed like a cash exchange. Like, I've needed some cash, so I went and I gave some stuff to somebody, and they said, if you come back with more cash, you can get that stuff back, and we're going to redeem it. And so we come back, and we have cash, and we get it back. Like, it's a financial exchange. And there's a little bit of that in this, but it's actually deeper. And we know that Peter is speaking of it even deeper because of what he said before when he says, be holy as I am holy. He's calling back to Leviticus, the book of Leviticus, which is all about rules and regulations, and we don't like to read it, and so let's not go there, right? But it's calling back to Leviticus where it's reminding the people of Israel, this new nation that's being formed, that God took them out of slavery and redeemed them and made them a new nation. So it's less about a financial exchange, a tit for tat, a saying, well, you're holding somebody ransom, you've got my stuff, or you've kidnapped somebody and you've got them, so I'm going to give you money for them, and then you're going to give them back, because Satan doesn't have possession of you. right? Jesus didn't need to pay something to Satan to get you back. You, in fact, were in slavery, though, to an old way of thinking, an old way of living into sin. And that reminder is that that ransom is about setting you free. It's about liberty. It's about freedom. And so when we think, well, maybe the Lord didn't pay enough for me. We have to stop and think, well, it's not about that. It's about the fact that I have been set free. I'm no longer a slave. I'm no longer in bondage. And so one of the first steps for us to be holy or to be holy is to understand our hope. And one of the reasons why we have hope is because we've been set free. So let's talk about holy. In that passage Leviticus that he talks about that he quotes there he says I want you to be holy because I am holy. You need to be holy because I am holy. That word can be scary for us. 
Every morning when I look at myself in the mirror, I know that I'm not holy. And I'm sure you do too. That you think to yourself, I just don't match up. I just... And maybe we're comparing ourselves to other people. Maybe we're comparing ourselves to some ideal. And we're thinking about the things that we need to... Yeah, yeah, if I did these eight things or if I was more like this person, then I would be holy. I would be a good person. I'd be acceptable. But listen, this holiness that Leviticus is talking about and that one Peter is talking about, this holiness, it knows no boundaries. It's not a checklist. It's actually about every area of our lives. It's actually not about Sunday. It's about every other day. James Bryan Smith, in a book that's called The Good and Beautiful God, writes this about God. He says, the essence of God is holiness. Holiness is the divine attribute. God is pure. There is no sin, evil, or darkness in God. So rather than defining holiness by a list of things that God does, which is impossible, it's better to step back and consider this big picture. God does what is consistent in His nature. There's nothing that He cannot do That is not holy, because that is who he is. A.W. Tozer has a really interesting perspective on this. He says this, To Israel first and later to the church, God says, Be ye holy, for I am holy. He didn't say, Be you holy as I am holy, for that would demand of us absolute holiness, something that belongs only to God. Before the uncreated fire of God's holiness, angels veil their faces. The heavens are not clean and the stars are not pure in His sight. No honest man can say, I am holy. But neither any honest man will not ignore the words of the inspired writer, follow peace with all men. Follow me in all holiness and peace, without which no man can see the Lord. So A.W. Tozer says, caught in this dilemma, what are Christians to do? We can't be holy, but we're called to be holy. He says, we must, like Moses, cover ourselves with faith and humility while we steal a look at God whom no man can see and live. We are broken and contrite in heart, and He will not despise us. We must hide our unholiness where? In the wounds of Christ. We must take refuge from God in God. Above all, we must believe that God sees us perfect in His Son. Holiness is not about what has already been done. It's not about us doing enough. It's about what has already been done in Jesus Christ. Look, holiness is not quantitative. That means it's not measured by external things. It's not measured by a list or not measured by accomplishments. Holiness is qualitative, meaning that in it we possess the likeness of God. 
It's not about getting ourselves holy, but it's recognizing, as God says, I am holy, therefore, because of that, you be holy. And in fact, you are holy. I want to flip back to Jesus and Matthew 19 because I think it's instructive for us. Matthew 19, verse 16, or verse 16. There's a man who comes to Jesus and he has a question for him. And Jesus has an answer that he probably wasn't expecting. Matthew 19, starting in verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him, Jesus, and saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. And if you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, Which ones do I need to keep? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, All these I've kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell your possessions and give it to the poor, and you will have a treasure in heaven and come and follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had a lot of possessions. I think it's instructive for us in this place because what Jesus is saying there is if you want to be perfect, you need to sell everything and get... No, that's actually what he says, but that's not what he's pushing. Now, it wouldn't be bad for us to sell our possessions and give it away. Sometimes we get encumbered by those. As a matter of fact, sometimes it's all those things that cause us to be hopeless because we think we're going to find hope in them and they don't give it to us. What Jesus is saying here, what he's getting at is he says... You need to allow God to have dominion and reign over your heart. To quote Hunt for the Wilder People, Jesus is tricky like that. Listen, he says to him, look, what are the commandments I need to keep? And Jesus lists all the commandments that have to do with the relationship with others. He doesn't list any of those that have to do with the relationship between God and man. He doesn't say, have no other gods before God, don't have idols, keep the... That's not what he says. He says all the ones that have to do with here. Why? Because Jesus knows his heart. Right? Jesus knows his heart, and his heart is this. I'm God. Aren't these people lucky that I deign to give them care? So he wasn't even keeping those commandments between himself and others because of God's love for him. He was keeping them because he thought they were all lucky to have them in his life. Because why? Because he was God. And so what God does through Christ is he says, look, to be perfect, you've got to get off the throne of your heart. To be perfect, you've got to recognize that you want to be God and God is the only one who can be God. He's the only one who can do good. No one else can. So when you sit back and say, I've done pretty good, know that you're lying to yourself. That in fact, God is the one who does good, and then God, through Christ, enables you to do the good that He wants you to do. And 
What you have to do is move out of the way. Look, the essence of sin that separates us from the holiness of God is our own self-sovereignty. Our own desire to be our own God. And the only thing that can move us is repentance. Listen, repentance is not just simply feeling sorry about our sin. It's about losing control. Dying to the need to direct and defend and define and do. It's allowing the true king to reign at last. Peter hits on this again a little bit later in 2 Peter as he writes. In 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4 he says this. His divine power, speaking of Jesus, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promise, so that through them you may become partakers in the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. It is because of Christ that we have moved into this place of holiness. And more than that, it's not about separation, but it is about distinctiveness that is defined to us by who Christ is. We see a couple of times in this passage that Peter tells us about Jesus' death and His resurrection. And it is in His redemptive suffering that we don't just have motivation to be holy, but we have the basis of our holiness. And it's not a holiness that causes us to separate. It's a holiness that causes us to live as Christ lived. If Christ is the full manifestation of who God is, who is holy, then we step in as Christ steps in. And so how did that holiness work? Did he separate himself out? Or did he rush in? Well, we know that Christ rushed in. That he didn't allow himself to be defined by what others perceived of him, by what others thought of him, but he stepped in and said, no, As the holy God incarnate, I go to where the sick are. Praise be to God, because I am desperately ill and sick, and I need the God who will be holy in my midst. Volv puts it this way. When our identity is forged primarily through the negative processes of the rejection of the beliefs and practices of others, when we have to push others away from ourselves and be distant from them to be able to have our own identity, then we miss out. It is only those who refuse to be defined by their enemies that is able to bless their enemies. What he's saying there is that we have to move forward in the world, not separating ourselves out, not being identified or defined by their perception or our own perception of how they perceive us. But we step in because we are defined by Christ alone and His goodness. It's interesting that when Peter is talking about this former way of life, he doesn't say to us, don't be like your neighbors. That's not what he's saying. Look at what he says. 
He says, as obedient children, do not conform to the passions of what? Your former ignorance, the way that you were. Or do not fall into the trap of your forefathers. Don't fall into that inheritance that's perishable that they had. Too often we define ourselves in our holiness by what we don't do that others do. And don't look at the things that have held us captive that we still remain in bondage of. And what Peter is saying is, no, I don't want you to get trapped by your old life, the way you used to live, the things that you used to believe. You know, when you thought you were God. (laughs) And you said on your own heart. And you thought the world should bow down to you. I want you to remember that God is God. And that He loves you and has pursued you and has given you holiness. When N.T. Wright talks about this, he talks about it as sanctification. That's a big word, and he defines it this way, as being aligned with the holy. Sanctification is being aligned with the holy God. And he says it is us learning in the present the habits which anticipate our ultimate future. Holiness is tied directly to our hope in Jesus Christ. We can't begin to practice the habits of our future reality, being in the presence of God, completely and utterly. Being transformed completely to where we are in true, right, holy relationship with God, with ourselves, with others in place. We can't do that unless we have hope. Titus, Paul reminds Titus of those very things. In Titus 2, 11 through 14, he says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce all ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age, waiting what for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous to do good works. We have distinctiveness because we have hope that comes from an always loving, ever pursuing Father. How often does Peter in this passage pull us back to this family identity? This identity that we are, in fact, God's children. He says, as obedient children. He says, if you call on Him as Father. See, we recognize that this ability to live the gospel life in hope and in holiness springs most directly from our understanding that we are God's sons and daughters and that He is our Father. If God is not our Father, living a holy life is in fact impossible because holy conduct is the fruit of being a member of God's family. J.I. Packer put it this way, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity or the gospel life, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child. 
and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that, is prominent, that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that is distinctly Christian is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Peter reminds us of that. That in our holiness and on our hope, it springs only from the place where we recognize God as Abba. The Father who loves us and pursues us and comes for us. And it's in that that it gives us the strength and the courage to be distinctive in every place that we go. So that our holiness, that is not ours, but is Christ, exudes and permeates every aspect of our lives. And so, while it is good for us to gather together on Sunday mornings, because it is good for us to gather together on Sunday mornings and hear the word and worship and partake of the Lord's Supper, our gospel life of hope and holiness does not rest here only from 10 to 11.30 and grabbing a cup of tea. It is all of life. Now, Eric Little didn't run on the Sabbath. And some people thought that was crazy. Some of us look at it and go, how old school of him, really traditional. Some of us would say, I think he had freedom in Christ to do that. But here's what we know about Eric's life. Is that every bit of his life whether it was running or his missionary work or his relationships or his engagement with his fellow competitors, every bit of his life was about the Father. It just showed itself in a way so boldly in the Olympics. <laughs> every bit of our lives should be that way. And if you are here and you are thinking to yourself, that's all good and fine but I'm not sure I believe this. Listen, God is calling to you. He is wanting and longing to be your father. And he says, put aside your thoughts of the rules and the checklist that will get you in. I have gotten you in. I've made the way. And for those of us who want to take pride in all the good things that we do, let us remember, while those good things are good things, we do not put our faith in them. We put our faith in the loving God who through Christ brings us hope and holiness. Let's pray. Lord God, you are good to us. Let us hear your words. Let them be your words. Let them pour out on us. Let them take root in our lives and bring you glory. And if they are not your words, Father, we ask that they will depart, that they will burn up, that they will not confuse us, but that we will see your glory and your holiness, and we will exude that. It's in your name we pray. Amen.